Good morning, friends. Welcome to Summer Hill Church. It's really great to have you with us. We're going to be looking at this passage together over the course of this morning, and we've only got two more weeks afterwards in 1 Corinthians before we have a bit of a break, and we'll um, return to 1 Corinthians next year uh, and finish with the wonderful passage, chapter 15, uh, as we reach Easter uh, next year. So just a couple more weeks in 1 Corinthians. Uh, On your service sheets, you'll notice that we've got again a QR code for any questions. We're not having a question time as we did last week, uh, this week. Um, If there are any questions, we might have time for a quick one or two uh, questions. But as we're going through this chapter, we do want to continue each week to give an opportunity for you to ask questions so that whether or not we answer them in, in our service or whether we put together little videos answering them, people have something to come back to and reflect on a little bit further, because we do realise it's difficult to perhaps process some of these things all in one go. Please do ask questions if you have them. Uh, There'll be others who thank God uh, for your willingness to ask a question on their behalf. Uh, How about I pray? Uh, And we'll dive into today's today's passage together. Dearest Father, we do ask that you would help us grapple with what it looks like to entrust ourselves to you in all that we are, all that we have, uh, all that we share with others that you've placed around about us as well. Enable us to honour you with our whole selves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on the 26th of January, back in 1988, after answering accusations about an inappropriate relationship with a White House intern... President Bill Clinton concluded an on-air press statement with these infamous words, this infamous one-liner. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Now, apart from the appalling disrespect of referring to another person as that woman, the air of outraged indignation which Clinton embodied during that whole denial of wrongdoing turned out to be little more than a smokescreen, didn't it? Clinton's statement aimed to project an image of moral virtue and standing. But in truth, it was actually masking a pattern of habitual sexual abuse of those who were entrusted into his care. And so too, we find actually, the Corinthian church wished to project an image of moral virtue, moral standing, while at the same time masking the abusive nature of their sexual behaviour with one another, particularly, it seems, from today's passage, within marriage. Uh, Have a look with me at the opening verse from today's passage, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, This is obviously something that the Corinthians felt confident enough to raise themselves in discussion with Paul. He writes... Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, this passage could be translated, as I've just put it there on your service outline sheets, as it is good for a man not to touch a wife. Uh, The word there for woman is exactly the same word that's translated wife throughout the remainder of the passage. And the word there to touch... Well, it's, it's a euphemism, isn't it? It's a euphemism particularly that was only ever used in the ancient world 
every single time scholars have seen this euphemism used, it's been used of a man who feels at liberty to take, or who feels at liberty to take sexual use of someone who is considered to be socially less than them. It's always used of a man who takes sexual liberties with a wife or a woman. As I mentioned last week, it was considered morally virtuous in the ancient world for a man to restrict sex with his wife purely for procreative purposes, for, for the bearing of honourable children who will carry on the honour of his own name. And to resort to sex outside marriage to satisfy one's less restrained sexual longings and desires. Uh, in his work, in a book that he wrote called Is Marriage an Affliction?, uh, Musonius, who was a Stoic philosopher, argued that sexual or erotic desire was only justified within marriage. Uh, was, sorry, that argued that sexual or erotic desire was only justified within marriage for the purpose of begetting children. It is unlawful, that is, erotic or sexual desire is unlawful when it is merely pleasure-seeking. The influential poet Ovid argued that there could be no erotic pleasure between a husband and a wife because it was a serious legal relationship of duty, a kind of relationship that wouldn't allow for anything frivolous like enjoyment. And yet at the same time, in the same paragraph, he could write these words. He could write, let the mistress hear the accents that she longs for, bring soft caresses and words that delight the ear, that she may ever be joyous at your approach. The wife, purely a serious legal relationship of duty. The mistress, worthy of one's delight and soft caress and joy. While those of high status often made a pretense of claiming that they honoured their wives far too much to use them for such carnal pleasures it seems I had little, little objection to looking elsewhere to indulge their desires when it suited them. The Corinthian church themselves seem to have embraced these same kind of values in their own relationships. And Paul is quick to call the bluff of the Corinthians who had written to Paul, declaring it is good for a man not to touch his wife. While virtue signaling the sexual restraint that they displayed towards their wives their blatant sexual immorality bore testimony to the fact that the Corinthian men were not above using women to satiate their own desires. Uh, have a look with me at the verses that follow on. After, after having quoted the Corinthians' virtual signalling, so to speak, Paul continues on in verse 2. He says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, Paul is not suggesting here, as I've heard quite a few preachers crudely suggesting, that marriage here is really just a cure for sexual immorality of the men who couldn't control themselves. Neither is Paul promoting a getting a wife as a life hack for single guys who can't exercise self-restraint and self-control. 
Marriage is not a divinely sanctioned playground in which we get a free pass to let our self-serving lusts off the leash. Marriage will not magically transform the heart and mind of someone who views their sexual desire as an appetite that the spouse simply has a duty to satisfy and fulfill. Paul is calling the Corinthians bluff. Verse 1 implies that it was primarily the husband to whom Paul was addressing this rebuke. But of course, I'm sure we can imagine that it's not only husbands who might be vulnerable to this kind of misusing others. Uh, Paul here is exposing the public hypocrisy by which married Corinthian men were projecting a public image of moral virtue while at the same time defrauding their wives of the sexual intimacy that was the proper character of their relationship. If Paul were writing nowadays, I've got no doubt that he'd call our bluff He'd call the bluff of men who project an image of sexual self-restraint, self-control towards their wives, while at the same time consuming other women, be it through pornography or random Tinder liaisons. Instead, Paul insists that husbands and wives fulfil their marital duties towards one another. Now, I suspect that for many of us, the term marital duty is more likely to evoke images of taking out the rubbish on bin night than something as intimate as enjoying one another as one flesh. Our own culture, like that of the Corinthians, tends to pit duty and delight as opposites to one another, as if delight consists in satisfying ourselves and duty consists in complying to externally imposed demands upon us, perhaps like taking out the trash. Delight and duty, two incompatible realities in irresolvable tension and conflict with one another. But for Paul, marital duty doesn't consist in simply satisfying another's imposed demands, nor in surrendering to expectations that have been externally imposed upon us by another. That's not how Paul thinks about duty. But in recognising the way in which husband and wife belong uniquely and intimately to one another. Uh, From Genesis chapter 2, you might remember these words that we read last week. As Adam saw Eve and recognised in her, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam recognised in Eve the beautiful reality that obligated his care and delight in that one who was one flesh with him. Or from the Song of Songs, this is from chapter 2. It's a book that gives a lot of space to the expression of delight from the woman, where she declares, my beloved is mine and I am his. She recognises here in her beloved a mutual belonging that is itself the cause of delight and joy. For Paul, in fact, when we get to the New Testament, marital duty consists in nurturing a shared delight in the one with whom we've become one flesh. In Ephesians chapter 5, in fact, this so-called duty is even described almost like a kind of self-care. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 5 on the screen, where Paul writes, 
Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. I wonder if you noticed here, particularly in Ephesians, even in contrast to 1 Corinthians that we're looking at together this morning, how completely one-sided this nurturing self-care is. It's exclusively the husband's duty described here in Ephesians to nurture the wife, the one who is one flesh with them. Perhaps Paul, actually after reading Ephesians, perhaps Paul would have us question the common cultural assumption that male sexual desire is inherently more all-consuming, more needy than female desire is. That women should inherently serve the needs of men as if their desire is more difficult to control or to use in a other person honouring kind of way. Perhaps it's more that if male sexual desire does turn out to be more ardent, perhaps it's that way for the good of the wife rather than for the good of the husband himself. Understanding marital duty in terms of a nurturing self-care also helps us make sense of the otherwise perhaps almost unsettling mention of authority in verses 4 and 5. Have a look in the verses 4 and 5. It's not perhaps the context in which we'd expect to hear Paul discussing authority. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again together, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. For Paul's day, the very thought that a wife would have anything to say about what her husband did or didn't do, not only with her, but with anyone else, would have been almost unthinkable. But I imagine that for many of us today, to speak about authority at all in the context of intimate relationships feels a little bit unsettling. But think perhaps for a moment, outside the sexual realm, of the way in which even our intimate friendships work. As a friendship with someone progressively deepens, as a, a trust steadily grows between perhaps ourselves and another person, we'll authorise them to see more of who we really are. We'll authorise them to speak more directly into our lives than we'd ever allow a stranger to do because we trust that they will speak in a way that builds us up and honours us and cares for us. And likewise, in marriage, we're authoring another person to care for and nurture who we are ourselves. We're not authorising another person to recreate us in the image of their own self-serving desires and fantasies. We're not authorising another person to determine what our bodies should look like, what length our hair should be, what roles we should play, what desires we should feel. We're authorising another person to care for and nurture who we are ourselves. And friends, pornography provides a devastating 
destructive harm in this respect. Pornography trains and teaches us not to delight in who our beloved actually is in themselves. Pornography trains and teaches us to forcefully recreate and reimagine them in conformity with our own distorted and self-serving desires. Such a thing couldn't be further from Paul's mind. And of course, it's not only pornography that can retrain our minds and our hearts to want to reshape and reform our beloved to suit our own desires and longings, is it? There's plenty of M and G-rated movies that might have the same reshaping, reforming impact upon our imaginations. Friends, to belong to one another does not mean that they are for reshaping to suit our own longings and desires, whatever it is that might influence that desire to reshape and reform them. I've always been a little bit stumped by Paul's insistence at the end of that verse we just read, down there in verse 5, that it should be prayer alone that might give reason for a couple to temporarily lay aside their duty to intimately nurture one another. Why prayer? Did their prayer really take up that much time that they needed to do away with sex for a period of their lives? It's always seemed a little uncertain to me as to why it's prayer particularly that Paul addresses at this point. Uh, I was hearing from both Lauren and Fiona this week about a discussion that their own growth group had had that came up with what I think is probably the most helpful reflection on these verses that I've yet come across in my reading about them. I wonder if you recall that Jesus himself declared that in marriage it is God himself who joins two people together to be one flesh. We declared that yesterday when Tom and Grace, Tom from the evening service, was married here right in this building. Perhaps when there is some strife or some sickness, some grief or maybe even some wrongdoing that has compromised the one flesh unity of husband and wife, perhaps then prayer really is the only sane thing to resort to, asking for God himself to maintain and restore that intimacy that husband and wife find themselves unable to sustain on their own strength. And in fact, we don't have time to look at it together today, but there's a similar passage in Peter's letter, one of Peter's, Peter's first letter, that speaks about the same way of the intimate connection that can be there between our prayers to God and a husband's intimate care of his wife. Yet Paul also knows, and he recognises in today's passage, but much more in the passages yet to come that we'll look at in the next two weeks, that for many of us, for many believers, marriage won't ultimately be the shape that our own lives end up taking. And even for those of us who do marry, it will at most be only for a portion of the lives that God has entrusted to us. Paul compassionately recognises the messy complexities and compromises that will invariably characterise life in the real world. And we're going to dig into those over the coming two weeks. But Paul already signals these realities 
uh, in our final verse of today's passage. Have a look with me at verse 7, where we'll finish our time. Paul writes in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What does Paul mean here when he says that he wishes that others were as he is? What does Paul mean when he refers to these various gifts or graces that people possess in different ways to one another? And the truth is, we don't actually know exactly what Paul's marital status was. Perhaps Paul had simply never gotten around to getting married. Perhaps Paul had been betrothed to a nice Jewish girl before his conversion to Christianity. Perhaps Paul had once, been, uh, once had an unbelieving wife or a fiancé who had separated from him at the point of his dramatic conversion to the Christian faith out of Judaism. Had Paul even perhaps been widowed? Whatever the case, it seems most likely that Paul himself was unmarried at the time of writing this particular letter. Yet, friends, it is not as if Paul's celibacy was some spiritual superpower, as I've heard people describe it in the past, as if he had some miraculous gift that enabled him to live in a way that the rest of us mere mortals aren't able to. There is nothing in our passage to suggest that Paul wasn't, that, sorry, that Paul was superhumanly impervious to or immune from sexual desire that we ourselves are familiar with. Paul, no doubt, had to learn contentment in his own unmarried situation, whatever exact shape that took. But that does not mean it came either naturally or easily to him. And that's the case for many, many people who find themselves unmarried as well. Paul's grace, Paul's gift was simply that he was free to remain unmarried. Paul was free to keep serving the church in his current unmarried state in a way that others were not able to, those who were perhaps separated from their wives or were married to unbelievers or betrothed to someone. Paul's grace or gift was that he was free to remain unmarried in the service of God's people. But whatever particular situation it may be that we ourselves find ourselves in, it will be a situation that God can use for the blessing of His people as well. Look at these words from later on in 1 Corinthians, we'll look at them next year, a passage, chapter 12, that speaks a lot about the gifts, the grace that God gives to each of us differently. There Paul writes, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, that is, for the good of others. Some of us have never been married. Some of us are separated. Some of us are widowed. Some of us are divorced, but each of these precious brothers and sisters are God's grace and gift to us by the virtue of being a part of our church community. Those who are unmarried 
for whatever reason, in whatever way, through whatever trials or hardships or free choice, they remind us that the good of sexual intimacy is only one potential aspect of human existence, and not even the most enduring one at that. We're reminded not to treat sex as the ultimate good. As Jesus himself reminds us, there will be no giving in marriage or taking in marriage in the resurrection. Those who are unmarried remind us that no one spouse, no one husband or wife, even the love of one's life, is sufficient to fully satisfy all our human longing and desire for intimacy with others. In fact, that longing for acceptance and intimacy is found ultimately in Christ, who calls us friend, who reveals His whole self to our whole self, holding nothing back. Their hard-won contentment, for those who are unmarried, their hard-won contentment in Christ may offer us a gentle rebuke, may offer a gentle rebuke to those of us who, in our current marriage state, are resentful towards a husband or wife we perhaps feel has let us down in some way. In their sexual faithfulness, these brothers and sisters are a precious gift to us. And in a sense, we might say that they're even a better witness in that they point forward to what we yet have to enjoy in and through the Lord Jesus himself exclusively. But the married among us also are a gift to the church in other ways as well. The married remind us that our sexuality is to be used in the exclusive lifelong service of another person, even when burdened by sorrows or sickness or suffering. The married ought to be a witness to the rest of us that our sexuality is never a vehicle for the pursuit of our own fulfilment and meaning and satisfaction. Uh, I read a book during the holidays uh, several months back now by Sally Rooney, a novel called Beautiful World, Where Are You? I wouldn't necessarily um, recommend it. There were parts of it that left me feeling a little bit awkward and I had a bit of a skim, quick skim read over, but it was a book that reflected deeply on just how intertwined friendship, a desire for intimacy and our sexuality actually can be. And a key chapter in that book asks a friend with, with heartfelt, earnest frustration... I wish there was a good theory of sexuality out there for me to read. What about sex itself? I mean, what even is it? For someone who had so given themselves to it, it was moving them to see themselves so utterly confused and bewildered about what it was that they were giving themselves to. This character laments that we are so consumed by absurdly strong passions and impulses and desires, desires that we don't really know what to do with, where they come from, or what they are for. Desires that end up overwhelming and paralyzing so many of the other beautiful aspects of non-sexual relationships that we could be delighting in instead. It's actually a tragic irony in the book that the one character who is presented as the most devoted Christian in the story is the one who causes the most confusion and heartache and chaos 
by failing to recognise what the Scriptures witness to as the shape of our sexuality within marriage. In setting aside sexual intimacy exclusively for the marriage relationship alone, the Christian view of lifelong exclusive marriage ironically frees us up to pursue other forms of brotherly and sisterly intimacy and friendship with each other without having to anxiously second-guess and constantly renegotiate about whether sex might become a part of this relationship with another person or it might be expected or asked of us unexpectedly. The shape of Christian marriage that we all share in and are committed to supporting and upholding together, we declare that at every marriage, wedding service that we go to, gives us a framework to be able to explore intimacy and friendship beyond merely the sexual, in a way that our world often struggles to see as a possibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we read before reminds us that there are different gifts, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God who is at work amongst us. Whether it be inside marriage or outside of it, each has an equally precious opportunity in God's eyes to honour God and one another with our bodies. Let's pray that God's Spirit might enable us to embody that ourselves. Our dearest Father, our bodies, our sexual selves, our longing for intimacy those dear friendships that shape so much of what we find precious in life. Father, were we to try and make sense of them and order them and sustain them in and of our own strength, we would be left confused and bewildered. Perhaps, Father, sometimes even ashamed and remorseful. And yet, Father, we thank you that in your kindness you have set aside all kinds of a state and pattern of, of living whether it be those who are married, those who have never been so, those who are widowed, those who are divorced, and, and those who are bewildered in a state of separation or perhaps longing for their engagement to come to a more complete and final fulfilment. Father, we ask that whatever state we find ourselves in, you would equip us with the grace of your Spirit to love you and to love others around about us, with these bodies that you have so graciously entrusted to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, any questions or comments that you'd like to make, you can send them through to that QR code. They're anonymous. Uh, some of them we might be able to answer in the service. Others we might take a bit more time and care to reflect on uh, and um, provide those answers in another format in the next week or so. Uh, we're going to sing, though, now. Uh, and can I just remind you that, unfortunately at the moment, the government still does require that it's only those who are double vaccinated uh, who will sing with our masks on, but we'll all stand nonetheless as the music team leaves us. <laughs>